Hi, welcome to Office Hours. I'm Ian. And I'm Encore. And today we'll be talking to Kyle Gabrogi. Encore, you want to tell us a little about Kyle? Dr. Kyle Gabrogi is a lecturer at BU and also an adjunct professor at the Department of Psychology at Northeastern. But to us, he's our lab professor for principles of neuroscience class we're both taking. Professor Gabrogi started his work with Mark Breedlove in his lab at Michigan State studying genetic and environmental influences underlying sex differences in behavior. If you don't know Mark Breedlove and you took an intro to neuro class, check your textbook. He's most likely on the back of it. Dr. Gabrogi then went on to Florida State University where he did neurobiological studies of aggression and socially monogamous variables and earned his MS and PhD in neuroscience. Following that, he was awarded an NIH postdoctoral fellowship to study in Ed Kravitz's lab using cutting-edge opto- and chemogenetic techniques working with fruit flies to study social behavior and defeat. He then went on to do a few more postdoctoral fellowships around Boston at Tufts and Boston College, and now he's here today talking to us. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our very interesting conversation with the Kyle Gabrogi. So good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I started neuroscience research in Michigan quite some time ago uh, at the turn of the century. 1999? Uh, yep, from 1999 <laughs> to 2000. And at that time, I was at Michigan State University in psychology, actually. And we take for granted that neuroscience programs didn't exist back then, especially for undergraduate education. Uh, so I was really interested in how the brain controlled complex clinical behaviors like psychopathology, but Mm -hmm. especially disorders that are sexually dimorphic, right? So uh, eating disorders was the lab that I first started in, and then I went to a lab that looked at ADHD. Uh, So that's where I really started my interest in behavioral neuroscience. It was born there, and it's uh, been history since. Awesome. Well, before we get into the meat of the podcast... There's one question we want to ask you is, how do you pronounce your last name? Yes. <laughs> is it Gabrog? Is it Gabrogi? The people want to know. There's a war between the people. We get There's a lot two of sides. emails. Oh, really? <laughs> my, phone, my phone's blowing up every day. <laughs> okay, phon- okay, very easy, right? So phonetically, it's go, bro, gi. Oh, the gi. Yes. And so go, G-G-E. Oh, so we were right, and we go, thought bro, we were wrong go, the bro, whole time. Go, bro, gi. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, kind of like okay. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like, go, bro, gi, go, bro, gi. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way Pete's to, best way to yes. it. memorize right. it, yes. Got it. <laughs> um, so, like, let's say you just meet someone new, someone introduces you to someone. What do you say, like, what you do and, like, how you do this? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, so I get into an Uber. Yeah. And if the conversation gets brought up, right? I'm to think of, <laughs> and you go, how long have you been driving for Uber? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And usually if there is small talk, which is difficult to find in that kind of social situation, mm-hmm. but if it comes up, right, usually with a just typical person in my environment, I say I do science. And if they're really curious and they probe further, I say, oh, well, I'm in neuroscience. And immediately I can. you guys could both – picture, right, most people's reactions are, you're really smart. Yeah, every time. <laughs> yeah. Every time. We are smart. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we're all, I yeah, you guys are. are very smart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what's so interesting about the field of neuroscience, you know, again, going back to my early college days when neuroscience wasn't a formal education in undergraduate curriculum, we didn't really know what to expect in terms of our interests in studying the brain and if people were even curious about behavior. So as you guys have been experiencing so far at BU, 
it's a transdisciplinary field, right? You have mm -hmm. your curriculum is evident in that you have to take so many different courses, ranging from, you know, working out the physics of neurons, like you guys are learning now, and moving up to even complex patterns of circuit functioning and behavior. So, <clears throat> to even the lay person, most people don't quite get what neuroscience is. I don't think. Yeah. yeah. Immediately, I think that innate gut reaction of most people is that you're in medicine. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Why do you think that? <laughs> I, I, at least that's been my experience so far. Well, is well, every time I tell someone I'm studying neuroscience, they're like, oh, brain surgeon. <laughs> brain yeah, surgeon. <laughs> I, think, I think just the term neuroscience, right? There's it, something around it. Yeah. Like that, rocket science. Sure. Yes, exactly. Astrophysics. Mm -hmm. And I, a lot of people don't necessarily know what it means. And so they just assume that it's something way over their head, pun intended. <laughs> Cranium. Yes, <Nice>. exactly. <laughs> so how did you get your start in science? What was the first thing that pushed you towards the field of science as a whole? Hmm. Actually, it was a professor, right? So at Michigan State, I was taking, so this is my, actually, uh, coincidentally, my fall term, sophomore year, hmm. I was taking an abnormal psychology course by this professor, Dr. Kelly Klump. She had just moved to Michigan State, very young, uh, just finished a uh, residency at McLean Hospital, which is Harvard Psychiatric Hospital here uh, in Boston. And she was talking about the biological underpinnings of mental disease. And that whole section of her course really fascinated me. And I wanted to learn more about how the brain could control pathological behavior. And that set up set off, set off a cascade of my interests. And so I joined a number of different labs at Michigan State trying to figure out what it was that I was inherently interested in studying about the brain. Mm -hmm. And so I worked in her lab, which studied twins. And she was looking at the genetic and environmental influences on eating disorders. So kind of a new perspective that hadn't been discussed quite yet in the literature, so moving away from culture and society and thinking more about the brain and using a reductionist model of thinking about how genes, molecules, cells could control complex behaviors like eating disorders. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was sort of my introduction to the field of behavioral neurobiology. And I got really interested in sex differences. So like what makes a male, female brain, and everything mm -hmm. in between. So coincidentally, at a journal club, so I joined her lab. She invited me to join her twin research lab. And in one of her journal club meetings, I presented a nature paper on digit ratios. So these 2D, 4D ratios in humans and behavior, so sociosexual behavior by this professor, Mark Breedlove. And at that time, he was at the <laughs> University of California, Berkeley. Uh, and I presented that paper. I got really interested in how prenatal environments could predispose the brain to act in sexually dimorphic ways in adulthood. And so it wasn't maybe five months after that journal club where I presented that Nature article. And I was meeting with Dr. Klump in her office, office hours, yeah. which I regularly attended every week. Yes, there we go. That is correct. And... Uh, she told me, she said, Kyle, you're never going to guess who's just accepted a faculty position at Michigan State. <laughs> it was Mark Breedlove. He was moving Mark. from the Bay Area to Michigan State to open up his lab on sex differences in the nervous system and social behavior. 
So then I bridged my interest in clinical psychology to behavioral neuroscience. So I moved from human research and twins to rodents. Sounds like you did a lot of hard work and it got kind of lucky, but I, I, respect, <laughs> I respect that so much. Now, if we could step away from the science, let's just say like, if you could sum up your life in terms of, per se, a fruit, per se, and go into as much detail as you can, what fruit would you be? This is my side of the podcast, by the way. <laughs> okay, fruit. Uh, I was thinking this is going to be a fruit fly pun, but... No, just uh, fruit. A Straight fruit. Up. Produce. Are you more of a vegetable guy? Oh, if you're a vegetable uh, guy, yeah, yeah. take it where you want to go. Fruit. We don't want to limit you. No, we're not trying to categorize you. No, um, let me think. Mm-hmm. Fruit. Because, like, I'd, I would say Encore, I would say he's, like, a nice... Dare I say bushel of strawberries, just like oh, in, in nature's most perfect form. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I would have to say maybe a starfruit. Okay, I guess. Starfruit. It's kind of exotic, not too sweet, bitter. Yeah. Right? It's something new, fresh. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, I think we don't know a lot about starfruit. So if I had to take a guess, yeah. That, it's that's the neuroscience the, of the It's fruit. the neuroscience <laughs> Maybe. of the fruit. Maybe. Do they have a brain? I mean, flies do. <laughs> flies do have a brain. Which you'll, you'll find out sooner rather than later. Yeah. <laughs> hey, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your fly research? Because, like, mm-hmm. honestly, the students here just know you as the fly guy. Is that that's, what I'm known as? Yeah, the well, fly Well, it's guy. more gabrogi, but... <laughs> yeah. The fly guy is the second. Fly, fly guy, it comes name. to mind. Yeah, they're like, we, we can't pronounce your last name. How do you... <laughs> how do you who's this gabrogi guy? Uh, fly brains, right? I mean, there are different camps in the neuroscience community where people disagree about whether or not you call this constellation of ganglia, right, this mass of cells in an insect an actual nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so you guys can probably imagine I subscribe to the camp of scientists that believe that this heady organ above their abdomen is, in fact, a brain. Sure, it might be a constellation of ganglia cells, but in my opinion, they that, that, that set of inner workings regulate all sorts of complex sensory information mm-hmm. to generate even more complex behaviors. So I would label it as a brain, not just a constellation of ganglia, but you will find different camps out there, yeah. as you can imagine. And you were saying just in lab the other day, you put some fruit flies in a dish, and then you, sh- you shone a light on them to make them... Dance. Jump around and dance a little bit. Yes. <laughs> you want to explain that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, so, uh, so what really turned me on to working with flies, right? So I studied humans, and why I transitioned from humans to rodents is because I wanted to ask more experimental questions and reduce the noise in the kinds of experimentation I was performing. And so with rodents... You have a lot more control over manipulating the brain and looking at the effects on behavior. Mm -hmm. So when I chose to study fruit flies, so I moved from Florida State working with prairie voles, this little field mouse that pair bonds in the wild, and you can reproducibly examine that social behavior in the lab and look at the neurobiology of social behaviors like aggression. And so I, too, found that I ended up getting into a sort of a dead end with the prairie voles and the kinds of experimental questions I could ask. So I switched to flies because 
the fly allows for more control genetically over the brain. And now with the advent of a number of sophisticated behavioral automated measures that you can look at complex emotion-like states in flies, you can use this toolbox of genes to manipulate like a single neuron and in a living fly while they're behaving and understand how that one neuron and its processes can contribute to a complex social behavior like aggression. So as you guys will find out, there's a lot more tools available and you have exquisite control where you can reduce the noise and improve the conclusions that you draw from the experiments you perform. So you think that you think that there's a lot of value to this fly model, right? Do you think that there are is a general trend in neuroscience towards specific animal models, specific research methods? If so, what are the ones today that you think are? Yeah, so it's a great question. So um, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, or HHMI Foundation, is a large research enterprise that has devoted a lot of financial resources to support some of the best and brightest minds in science, and neuroscience in particular. And I, I don't know what year, but the HHMI Foundation opened up a gen, uh, campus in the South called Genelia Research Farms. Mm -hmm. And this particular organization has brought together a number of world-class scientists that study flies and other insects from a reductionist point of view to learn more about complex behaviors and just circuitry of the brain. And so there's a lot of money and investment right now from private organizations like uh, HHMI to support this basic research in flies and other invertebrates. And another important element of using invertebrates in the field of neurobiology is when Barack Obama generated the Brain Initiative, right? So very similar to the Human Genome Project, where the goal was to use federal tax dollar money through NIH to decode the human genome, right? And that goal is in mind with Obama's Brain Initiative. And from my understanding, the very first set of proposals that went to fund how the brain is organized. So that's the primary charge of the Brain Initiative, is like the Human Genome Project to map out that entire alphabet. The Human Brain Initiative is to map out every neuron in the human brain and all of its connections <laughs> so that there could be a database where scientists, clinicians, policymakers could generate questions, theories, ideas, interventions clinically to treat the brain in humans. And so some of the first awarded proposals for that brain initiative were work using invertebrates, and like fruit flies, like C. elegans, and other invertebrate species, because their nervous systems are a lot less complex, and we can get a better understanding of how individual neurons work in small microcircuits that control complex behavior that have the potential to help us better understand the connectivity of the human brain. Wow, that's that's, that's a lot. So, so <laughs> you you said that the Obama administration has had such a like strong impact on research funding and kind of the culture and the direction of scientific research. What has been that 
impact of the Trump administration and and kind of the newer policies they've rolled out on research? It's a great question. Getting political. Yes, <laughs> I didn't think. Yeah, see, I didn't think this was going to go this way. Yeah, I didn't at all. I'm just curious. Um, Neuroscience envelops everything yeah. and anything. So, I mean, to be honest, I don't follow politics very well. Me neither. I'm not. A uh, but <laughs> from my understanding, at least with the current administration, uh, there have been significant cuts to both the National Institutes of Health, as well as the National Science Foundation. Right, the two uh, foremost leading uh, federal agencies governed to use taxpayer money for scientific research. Do you feel that do you feel that impact well right now you're not necessarily in a lab, but how does that how do those big policies have immediate impacts on how people can do research? On the individual, on the lab on the lab level? Yeah. Uh, it's restrictive, right? And unfortunately that kind of compression can um, impact discovery, right? Uh, I'll give you a tangible example, right? So my background is in the neurobiology of motivated behavior. And I started investigations, as you guys know, in humans and then more reductionistic in rodents than flies. But the common hallmark of my work has been trying to understand sociosexual behavior, so courtship and aggression. As you guys will learn from the systems neurobiology class working with fighting fruit flies. Love to see it. <laughs> and uh, in the 90s, there was a big push by the United States to ban research on mating behavior, right? Mm. This natural form of motivational drive that many scientists were exploring just from a basic science perspective, right? What parts of the brain control the desire to court, courtship rituals, and mm -hmm. that kind of motivated behavior. And at that time in the 90s, there was a lot of funding that was reduced through from the NIH or NSF to work on those kinds of proposals. So then scientists in the US who were still interested in studying sex or sex differences in the brain had to get money through other avenues, either in the US or from other government agencies outside. And so that's just one example of how uh, governmental regulation and policies can constrict the, uh, yeah. the progress in a particular scientific discipline. Now, would you say, like, because I would say this is a very competitive field for research. And yeah, as an undergraduate, sure. as, it's terrifying as yeah. when you send out 40, 50 emails. You know, you get a few back and you feel great. But, like, labs are hard to secure. And is this almost making it harder for people who want to join the field and really dive in and yeah there's barriers now it affects it on all levels mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think so i mean i think you know i've been in boston almost nine years now and my time at michigan state and florida state where there isn't this enclave of um high-end science right it mm -hmm. was a little bit more easier to find research positions in places like Tallahassee or East Lansing. Yep. In Boston, it's it's difficult to be an undergraduate, I think, attend office hours mm -hmm. and have the opportunities that, you know, other students at other colleges and universities outside of a major metropolitan city like Boston could have. So I think my best advice for students is despite the political climate or redu the reduction in funding for science 
is to be curious. That's something in my experience in teaching I've noted in some students that you can't be taught. Yeah. And the students I see that go far in science are the ones that have this relentless curiosity uh, that goes above and beyond standardized tests or uh, pre-med sure. yeah, <laughs> requirements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's something that can't be taught. So my best advice is to be also relentless and never give up on trying to experience your, curios your curiosity in ways that get you to a lab that you're motivated to learn more about the topic. Yeah. You can't teach the wow factor. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> the it factor, yeah, cannot yeah. be taught. You've worked with undergraduates in the research lab. Is curiosity the only thing you see that separates the people, that the undergraduates that are successful in the research lab from the ones that are not, or is there more to it? I think, so curiosity, I, I, in my experience, trumps most things. Uh, I think patience is critical, right? Uh, the scientific process has a delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. So if you're the type of student who expects immediate gratification, I wouldn't necessarily say science is for you, <laughs> yeah. right? You have to know that most experiments don't work yeah. and be okay with that. Uh, so in addition to curiosity, I would say patience and hard work. I think those three factors, that trifecta of temperament can make you successful in science. Sure. Yeah. And one thing I would argue for, at least on my own accord, is naiveness. Like yeah, being naive, being okay. honestly, makes research amazing because I don't know the the hard nights of, you know, trying to get an action potential from <laughs> from a worm for a lab the next day. I don't know <laughs> the struggles. And to me it's just like, wow, there's almost no limit to what we can find and what we can do and how we can go about this and it's so open for exploration and that's just so inviting. Yeah. And I love that. I, I think there's I think there's a certain optimism that you have when you're an undergraduate. You kinda have things. to have it. You have to have you I mean yeah, you have to have it, but like you get taught all this stuff, like you you're like, Oh my god, there's like this discovery, oh you're learning optogenetics. But like I, I had I worked over a lab this summer and like a huge shell shock that I had when I was working at that lab was how much they like fail like it's it's like honestly it's it's constant problem solving because you're constantly messing up yeah and I and I thought I was like wow that's like to get these to get these beautiful pictures to get like that nice like nice action potential curve like it's it's ridiculous what people have to go through so uh, one thing one thing I wanted to ask you was was there you've you've probably done many projects throughout your many postdocs is there any projects that stand out in specific that are that were particularly frustrating for you or particularly rewarding for you yeah right so moving from prairie voles and florida state which is really a, a systems neuroscience level of analysis to genetics was particularly challenging but that's why i decided to move fields because the, at that time in 2010 when I graduated, neuroscience was exploding with all of these genetic tools available to probe the nervous system and ask different experimental questions that hadn't been uh, worked on before. And so I had to really push myself outside of my familiar comfort zone and go into this 
high-profile lab, right, mm -hmm. going from two well-known state schools, right, but I think the acceptance rates for both are average about 60%. Yeah. to Harvard Medical School, where yeah. it's the Department of Neurobiology, the first program in neuroscience in the world in the 60s to work with this top-notch scientist who discovered GABA. That was really intimidating. Uh, Ed, yeah. Ed Kravitz? Is <laughs> yes. And into a lab where I was doing my postdoc where almost everyone had worked in flies mm -hmm. and, and had done a PhD, so five to eight years with this animal, and I had never explored that level of analysis before. So I'd say that was the biggest risk I'd ever taken in my academic career mm -hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. But it paid off in a, a great deal too because it brought me to Boston. Sure. So when you, <coughs> so you go to this, you go to this, <laughs> you go to this lab, right? It's Ed Kravitz, this big guy. Had he already discovered? He's definitely. Oh yeah. Yeah. When was the discovery of GABA? <laughs> in the sixties. In the sixties. Long, long time ago. Didn't yeah. win Nobel Prize for it. Did he? No. He didn't. Oh yeah. Did not. Did not. Did not win <laughs> the Nobel Prize for GABA. Uh, by sure. the way, to the listeners that don't know what GABA is, it's a, it's an inhibitory trans neurotransmitter. Yep. And if you didn't have it, you would be constantly seizing. Yeah, you would. So it's very important. <laughs> Laps with seizures. <laughs> so, very sad. So when you when you go into this this very intimidating lab la, very intimidating lab environment, what are some of the mindsets that you had that that kind of helped you push through that helped you um, get the most out of this experience? Hope. <laughs> Hope. <laughs> A relentless amount of optimism. Sure. And mm -hmm. hope that things eventually work out. <laughs> And you, you know, my philosophy about science is not only do you work hard, maintain curiosity, and be mindful of the amount of work it's going to take to generate a publishable unit, is to just have fun. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, science is a lot of fun, and if I wake up every morning and dread the work that I do in the lab, I would probably question whether or not my life choices were right or not. And so I had to just learn, have a steep curve of understanding genetics at that level of analysis and just made it work. Yeah, I, I think also joining that lab, like I said, with naivety, is that's a valuable perspective to these people. They wanna know how people who haven't been studying this for years look at it. Maybe you have a new perspective. Maybe you bring something else to the table that they just can't mm -hmm. see because they're so blind to it now. I agree. I think I think being <clears throat> I think being uh, willing to to present yourself as naive, like present yourself as not as smart as people around you is it's a it's something that people in fields like neuroscience have trouble with because like it's your identity, right? It's you're you're yeah. a smart person. You're always, like oh you're a neuroscience. You're a smart person, right? And so I think that's something that a lot of people can learn is to learn to be a naive person, learn to be curious. We always have room to grow, like yeah. <laughs> as people and as intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to, um, in the lab I worked at, I talked to, I had a really good relationship with one of the postdocs, and she'd tell me about how people in science like have such a big ego and how, and how like their ego often is, so, is like a huge problem in science, like it, it, it like, you end up with false data because mm -hmm. people have such a big ego and they often make assumptions about what the data will show 
and they match the data to their assumptions. Yep. And that just leads to false negatives all the time. So have, what, what's your experience with people with an ego? Like, has, do you think that people, any of your PIs specifically stand out in that way or in the other way that they try to encourage you to not have an ego and to, and to think about science in the right way? Yeah, I, I, I was lucky in that my introduction to science was with two people, Kelly Klump and Mark Breedlove, that were some of the most genuine, well-respected individuals in their own scientific communities. And they trained me those formative years of education to not have an ego, right? And to work together and be curious and have fun in science and expect that things don't work. Um, but I won't name individuals after that experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. Okay. That's understandable. <laughs> but, uh, Keep the record but clear. Sure. You know, I've, I've had a number of interactions with scientists that have egos, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in some cases that they, I don't necessarily know if they deserve it, but, sure. you know, they worked hard and uh, they're, uh, ethic of interacting with others is, you know, each to their own, I guess. But there was something I wanted to bring up again about what you mentioned earlier on, um, like, naivete and mm -hmm. uh, curiosity. Yeah. And so in, a, in addition to some of the constraints that the federal government puts on science, right, so you have a cool idea. Sure. Okay, so, like, what you guys will be doing this semester is generating your own project mm -hmm. and hopefully uh, some of you will use your grant proposal to apply for real research money in the future like an NSF graduate research fellowship and unfortunately as scientists we are constricted by the money we have mm -hmm. right and we might have a really interesting series of questions experimentally to ask but we're constrained by the financial significance of the work so Janilia, right, this, this farm, this research farm yes. in the South, sponsored by HHMI, mm -hmm. brings together these scientists and gives them a ton of money, and they don't ask for much. And so they bring together different perspectives and different areas of inquiry and give them the financial resources to ask really interesting and innovative questions so that they work together and they have little constraints over their, their technical as well as their theoretical orientations. It's like a research startup, almost. Yeah, just with not a lot of red tape. So they, they don't ask a lot of questions. Yeah. They just they hire good people and a, a product gets produced. That yeah. sounds like a great environment. Is that something <laughs> you are interested in, or are you oh, primarily yeah. focused on academia? Because, yeah. yeah, you know, for me, so I, as you guys know, I did three postdocs in Boston, HMS, Tufts, Med, and Boston College. After those three intensive research experiences, I wanted to shift my career path to education mm -hmm. and teaching in particular. And so that's what I do now full time. Yeah, I, well, we thank you for that thank one. Thank you. <laughs> Do a great job at the moment. You know, uh, we'll see how the semester goes. Right. <laughs> I just wanted to transition a, a little bit. We've been talking a lot of science. A whole lot of science. A yes. whole lot of science. Happy. So a, well, we had a little fruit. We had a fruit yeah, question. Star, know, we, star fruit. We dove in, yeah. But I wanted to ask, 
what does a typical weekend look at like at the Gubrogi right. household? The, yeah, the Gubrogi household. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's all about work-life balance. It's something I learned, sure. right? Uh, working incessantly in grad school, sometimes 16, 18-hour days. No exaggeration, right? So over time, you burn out. <laughs> yes. And so lately, the Gobrogi household has been a lot of work-life balance, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So traveling, exercise. I love cooking, so we cook a lot. Uh, it's as much leisure time as possible. I try not to even uh, reply to emails yeah. because it's important for me to compartmentalize my workflow in life. Uh, so usually it's a lot of traveling. Yeah. Uh, where, where have you traveled? Yeah, where let's let's get into that. Yeah. Uh, a number of places. Let's see. Probably my favorite place so far. It would. I love Australia. I've been there now three oh, times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, Australia. Yes, Australia, <laughs> yes. Actually, you know, speaking of NSF Graduate Research Fellowship proposals, so oh. when I was curious, naive undergrad, I had this bright idea that I wanted to have the National Science Foundation pay for me to go and travel to Australia, to the Great Barrier Reef, to collect seahorses. Because in 2002, I got fascinated by creatures that were sexually dimorphic and that had opposite patterns of reproductive biology. So these, these species in Australia, where the males actually are the ones that gestate the embryos mm -hmm. and give birth. And so I wrote this whole NSF proposal to study the neuroendocrinology of the male species of the seahorse to basically go to Australia and get paid. That's, that's a dream, is it not? So you worked on the Great Barrier Reef? No, no, no. no, so no my proposal was oh, not funded. Oh, just, yeah. <laughs> just a proposal. Yeah. You win some, was, you lose It was just a dream. Yeah, it was, it was yeah, a pipe dream. But, you know, that proposal led me to working with prairie voles. Yeah. And so that's what then got me interested and, and, and how I found out about the Prairieville animal model was going through this exercise of writing this grant proposal in undergrad to think about ways I could get money to go on these fancy trips. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I agree with that one. So now, like, let's say you get to the Great Barrier Reef. I don't know if you've been, but, like, you get there and yes. all, you can't relax. All you're thinking is, I need these seahorses <laughs> and I need this proposal to go through. <laughs> no, so, I mean, so, backtrack. So, right, I have been to Australia three times, oh, not okay. on the NSF's dime. Okay. <laughs> uh, but and I have uh, I'm, I'm scuba certified. Uh, I have I have observed the uh, two subspecies of uh, seahorses, but I have not uh, worked with them at all. But uh, so you know, I love going to any kind of tropical destination where I can think about uh, behavioral ecology in cool ways. One thing I'm curious about is that I love to ask researchers what's another field they would study if they weren't doing what they're doing right now. And I find that often comes from stuff like this. Do you think that behavioral ecology would be your second preference field of study? No, it would be, I, have, I know this answer very well, it would be cognitive neuroscience. Oh, yeah. I, you know, again, I started off with questions as an undergraduate, thinking about how humans function and work in a pathological sense, right? How does the brain become diseased? And now, in 2019, right, the kinds of technology that are available to examine the human brain in social contexts has exploded. So if I were to do it all over again at this moment in time, if I was like you guys, sophomores 
in college studying neuroscience, I would go into cognitive neuroscience because of the emerging tools available to study the brain in really interesting ways that in 1999, (laughs) 20 years ago, were impossible. Yeah. Well, that's also something in our lectures and our classes, we have to take all these different fields of neuroscience. We have to take electives Mm -hmm. in each of them to get our degree. And that's mainly for that purpose of allowing us to have an experience with all of them in each lab and see what really they are and how we would like to do it. And, like, that's amazing. And I I love that. Also, like, we're taught so much about how you're saying we didn't have that technology. It's such a new developing field, and cognitive neuro especially. Like, I don't know how much you guys are in the brain mapping areas, but that stuff's going crazy right now. And, like, computational models Mm -hmm. of, like, subspects of the brain regions and just connecting them, that's beautiful. That's so so amazing. Yeah, one of the uh, electives that I'm going to teach that I'm proposing is, uh, it's called sex and aggression. And in that course, there's a section on neurocriminology, right? So this idea that you get a PhD in neuroscience with a law degree, right, a JD, and you become an expert on the neuroscience of crime. And so if, so that sort of dovetails into your question about if I were to do it all over again, Specifically in the field of cognitive neuroscience, I would go into neurocriminology. That's really interesting. I've read, <laughs> I, re- I remember reading an article about neurocriminology, how they use imaging techniques in order to, like, suss out if people are lying. Is that, like, because like, I'm we're thinking... moving away from the polygraph. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we have fMRI now. Yeah. How, it, how much more accurate is that? Because I don't, I don't know. It, it seems like it has a lot of limitations. It seems like a lot of money. And also <laughs> that, too. And highly controversial, right? Yeah, that's um, true, actually. So there's a lot of evidence that looks at, you know, moving outside of this archaic idea of polygraph into the, ner- the brain. Mm-hmm. And can we scan the brain of an individual and determine their culpability for a crime. And that's really where the field, from my understanding of neurocriminology, is moving toward. Are we at the stage where we have enough science to understand, could it be that someone's brain chemistry or circuitry could have made them vulnerable to crime? Yeah. All I'm thinking is that like NCIS and CIS are all going to get a lot more boring <laughs> if we're just looking at brain scans. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, you guys have to take the seminar on sex and aggression. And uh, there are a few researchers in Boston that, and actually Pennsylvania at Penn, his name is Adrian Rain, that have been pioneers in this field of neurocriminology. And they get asked by high-profile defense teams to come and scan the brains of individuals on death row, right, in certain states that still have that, uh, to see whether or not someone is culpable for these heinous crimes that they've committed. And it's conversations that aren't going to go away. Highly controversial, but they're not going anywhere anytime soon. As a researcher, is there something distinct that you see that separates you from your peers and your colleagues? I would say approachability, right? I, you know, I agree. You're a nice guy. Yeah. You're a nice guy. <laughs> I'll put that out there. Yeah, yeah you know, I, approachability, I think, is important to have as a, an educator. Uh, and in my experience, 
you know, there's there's a fine line between like being best friends but a mentor, and I think it's important to find that happy balance so that you, as an instructor educator, have a highly likelihood of impacting the audience that you're educating, and if you can be approachable, I think that goal is is uh, met. Yeah, and that's kind of why we're here. Office hours. That's a great way to sum this up for us. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Well, thanks for coming and talking to us and allowing us to invade your office for an hour. Yeah. That's all right. (laughs) Yeah, of course. No, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, all right. We're signing out. Yeah, we don't know how to end it yet. This is our uh, first podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Got to start somewhere. All right. Thanks for watching. Special thanks to our production manager, Ian and Encore, our production assistant, Ian and Encore, our lead audio tech, Ian and Encore, our web gurus, Ian and Encore, our current intern, Ian and Encore, the guys who hold the boom mics, Ian and Encore, our specialized llama wrangler, Ian, and also Encore, and our fearless head of operations, Encore, and Ian. Thank you.